Coming up next on Contemplate. If it is not true that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, we are wasting our time being here. Period. That was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church, and this is Contemplate. So what is the deal with the resurrection of Jesus? Fact or fiction? Did it really happen, or is it just another legend from a long time ago? Let's find out. Here's Pastor David with today's episode, recorded live at Axe Church. Jesus said some things. He said that he was God. He said that he was the only way to heaven. Now the question is, did he prove it? Did he prove it by rising from the dead? That's what we're going to look at. But let's not forget that proofs, logic, and reason only go so far. They only go so far. They're not enough to bring relationship. I can prove to you that water at sea level boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius. That does not give you a relationship with boiling water. In the book of James, it says, even the demons believe and tremble. It's not helping them to believe. That's not giving them relationship. Remember, you already have beliefs. We've learned this in the past weeks. You already came in here with a worldview and with a set of beliefs. The question is, are your beliefs correct? Are they correct? Because Jesus ultimately wants those beliefs to lead to relationship. God loves you. The ultimate lesson today What I want to tell you today is not just that Jesus was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead, but that he loves you and that he wants a relationship with you, and that there's nothing in your life and that there's nothing in this universe that's more important than that. But in order to understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus rising again, we have to understand it within the bigger story. So there's this big true story. I say it's true. I've done a lot of work in the last six weeks to try to show you that it's true. But here's the story, okay? I'm going to give you a little piece of a sermon that Paul preached when he was in Athens. He went to a place called Mars Hill, and he preached to the Athenians. And this is in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 24. And he says this, God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven or of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far off from each one. Of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man. Whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
So Paul is giving us a version of this big story. This big story. And, and one of the first things that we see is that God created everything. And, and Paul talks about how God created man. Scripture says created man in his image. In the very image of God, the image of God is imprinted on you. Every man and woman and child sitting in this room has the image of God imprinted on you. There was a time in the life of Jesus where the Pharisees, these guys that were always trying to trip him up, they, were always, they didn't like him. They were always trying to mess with him. And one day they came to him and they asked him about taxes. They said, is it lawful that we should pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this is the one question I think most Christians wish Jesus would have answered differently. Um, especially as April 15th comes upon us here. And I think if I just had some scriptural basis to, to not pay these things. But they come and they ask him this. And Jesus says to them, hey, listen, give me a denarius, one of the coins, one of the Roman coins. That's what he asked them to do. And they give it to him. And he says this to him in verse 20 of chapter 22 of Matthew. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now, if these guys had not come to him simply for the point of tricking him, they might have asked the next logical question. What belongs to God? To which it seems reasonable to say, what image is on you? If you were made in the image of God, then you're to render yourself to him. Then you belong to him. As much as Caesar's coin with his image belongs to Caesar, you with God's image belong to God. And see, this is part of the story. As God created, man rebelled. He rebelled against God rather than giving God his due, which is to say our submission, our lives, we have rejected him, pushed him away. And here's the thing. God's holy, perfect. When we push him away, when we rebel, when we do evil, the Bible calls that sin. And it's very clear that all of us have done this, that all of us have sinned. It's also very clear that a holy God can have nothing to do with the sinful man or woman. Nothing to do. He can't. It's not an issue of whether he wants to or not. He simply cannot. It is impossible, logically impossible, as we talked about some weeks ago. Logically impossible that a perfect God can spend any time or be in the presence of imperfection. And so we had a problem. So we're in the second act, the dark part of the story, where we realize that we have come, taken the image that was on us, and instead of giving ourselves where we were due, we destroyed ourselves and our opportunity to be with the one who created us. And so this is the nature of how things were. And then this man came into the world claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be God, doing miracles, healing people, feeding thousands with very little. And people started to say, hey, Maybe we've got something here. But then a dark day came where they killed him. And he was dead, lying in a tomb. But three days later, he rose again. And that is the crux of the story. 
That is the biggest part of the story. That is the thing, the event that the entire universe is balancing on is this resurrection of Christ because in his death and resurrection, he reconciled man who was sinful to himself. He took the punishment that had to come, that had to come, and he took it on himself in Christ so that we could know him. This is why the resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. We are wasting our time. If it is not true that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, we are wasting our time being here, period. And there are many who say we are wasting our time. And some of you may be thinking, yeah, I feel like I am wasting my time. But here's the deal. If it's true, if Jesus did die and rise again, then that's something that is different than any other fact that's ever been. And it's something that if true, and if that was the payment for my sin and the reconciliation of me to God, then it's something that I'll live for and it's something that I'll die for. And the question you have to answer is if the evidence for the resurrection of Christ is legitimate and holds up and Christ is who he claimed to be, what should be proven if he truly rose from the dead, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Okay, let's get into the evidence. Here are some facts. Here's the thing about Christianity that I really like. For somebody who's a thinker like me, something I really like about Christianity is that it gives us lots of facts that can be examined. That's just the way Christianity kind of rolls. It gives us facts that we can look into. And so Paul does this. He gives us a claim a truth claim that can be investigated. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. And Paul says this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Paul is saying this. Listen, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Here are a whole bunch of people who saw it. Most of them are still alive Go ask them. Go ask them if it's true. Investigate my claim. Look into the evidence. Because you have to be convinced of this fact. Paul knows this. If you're not convinced of this fact, you'll never be a Christian. There'd be no point. In fact, if you're not convinced of this fact, you're in big trouble because there has been no reconciliation for you. The story, the dark part of the story where you're separated from God is still going on. So it's extremely important for the Christian church to be able to show that Christ rose from the dead. And he says, go and check it out. Go and check it out. So there is a, a guy named Dr. William Lane Craig, and he's done a lot of work on the historical facts regarding the resurrection of Christ. And he lays out four facts for us that are generally accepted across scholarship just generally accepted by most scholars. And I'm not talking about most evangelical Christian scholars. I'm talking about most scholars, liberal, conservative, whatever, whatever they're bent. Most scholars agree that these four facts 
are true. We're going to go through those four facts and then analyze them. Okay? Let's take fact number one. After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Okay? First fact. So this means that the burial site where Jesus was buried was known by both Jews and Christians and Romans. They all knew where it was because Joseph of Arimathea buried him there. So the disciples could not have said that Jesus rose from the dead in Jerusalem if there was a tomb that had a body in it in Jerusalem. This is pretty important because everybody knew where the tomb was. So why do we believe that these things are true? There's a couple reasons. The burial... The attestation to the burial of Christ is part of some of the very oldest source material we have. When I read to you in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, and we'll just read 3 through 5 because that's the important part here. It says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now that little section of Scripture... When we read it, it's just in the bigger part of the section of Scripture. But what scholars understand and know is that what he's quoting is a four-line kind of creed that goes back to the very earliest days of Christianity. In fact, it's, it's assumed by some that Paul would have learned this when he visited Jerusalem after his conversion in about 36 A.D. We are not talking about hundreds of years later, legends developing, and so on. We're talking about the very, some of the very earliest source material we have. We believe that that statement that Paul made was circulating in the church. So it's very old. This is one of the reasons that scholars believe it. The other is the Gospel of Mark, which in the Passion story, the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, uses material. We believe that Mark is working with material that is also very, very old. That all that material that he's talking about, and in that material he says that Jesus was buried in the, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Also, there is no competing story. There's no competing story about where Jesus was buried. All the sources are unanimous. They all say the same thing. Jesus was born, I'm sorry, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, that's important. It's also important because you would never make up, if you were trying to make this up, that Jesus was buried by one of the Jewish leadership because the early Christians did not like the Jewish leadership. Go figure. They were always trying to kill them and stuff. It sort of puts a damper on you. Um, and so to say that it was one of the Jewish leadership that buried Jesus would not have been helpful if you were making up a story. It just wouldn't have been helpful. They didn't like these guys. These are the guys that condemned Christ to death and were involved in his death. Okay, so we believe that this is true. New Testament critics, both liberal, conservative, agree that this is true. In fact, John A.T. Robinson of Cambridge University said that the burial of Jesus was one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Okay, that's fact number one. And we're kind of building here, if you're wondering, why, why is he talking about the burial so much? We're sort of building a case here. Fact number two. On the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Okay? On the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. The reasons that this is believed is similar to the ones for our last one. First of all, that little section that Paul quotes 
where he's buried and rose on the third day. We believe that's referring to when he talks about the third day. If you look at the other sources, he's talking about when the women came and found Jesus. We also have the source material in Mark that talks about it, that's consistent, that the women came on the third day and that they found the tomb empty, that it was empty. And we find that the, the, the account in Mark is one complete, if you, if you understand how to work with an ancient text, it's one complete literary piece, this account. And it's very old. It's very old, way back to close to the time that it happened. Also, the story is very simple. It's very simple. But these women, they came, they went to the tomb, they found it empty. It lacks the embellishment that legends tend to take on. See, if you allow something to go long enough, people do start to invent legends. And they try to make something seem really exciting. You have to understand that um, at the time that the Gospels were written, people could have checked all of these facts out. And so they had to be accurate. Now, later on, you have forged Gospels. We have, we have these Gospels we talked about. Back in the fourth week of the Skeptics Forum, we talked about the reliability of Scripture these forged gospels that came out later that were clearly, A, not true, B, not written by the people they said they were written by, like the gospel of Peter. Okay, the account of Resurrection Sunday in the gospel of Peter is a little bit different. I'll tell you about it. First, it was not the women who were there, but rather the Roman guard was there, all the chief priests and Pharisees were there, and a big crowd of people from the countryside were all there at the tomb on Sunday morning, okay? Suddenly there's this voice from heaven and the tomb door rolls back. Then we see two guys descend from heaven and go into the tomb, and then three guys come out, all humongous, two of them with their heads to the clouds, the third one with his head over the clouds. Then the cross starts floating out of the tomb. Okay? And the voice says to the cross, Hast thou preached to those who sleep? And the cross says back to the voice, Yea. Okay. You can laugh. It's nonsense, okay? That, that is what a legend looks like, okay? This was a gospel that came way later. It clearly was not written by Peter. And the story that's told is nonsensical and legendary and doesn't make sense. By contrast, the story we have of the women coming to the tomb is very, very simple and lacks any of those indicators that would say that it's a legend. This is why we believe it's true. Also, and maybe the most important... Why would you say, if you're making it up, that it was women? Now, let me explain. At the time, the testimony of women was not considered very valid. Josephus, a historian, says this, that the testimony of women was regarded as so worthless that it could not even be admitted into a Jewish court of law. That's how they looked at it. I don't agree with them, but that's what they said at the time. So if you were trying to write something and you were trying to make people believe it, you would never use women, ever, as the first witnesses of it. It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make any sense. So that's why we believe that the women found the tomb empty. Okay? Because when the disciples went around and said, he's risen from the dead, the Pharisees didn't say, no, no, he's still in the tomb. They said something different. They said that, they, that the disciples stole the body. So they knew the tomb was empty. There's really no question that the tomb was empty. Uh, Jacob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the resurrection, says, By far most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. This is just well known. This is just facts. 
This is just history. The third fact that Dr. Craig brings out in his presentation that's agreed upon by scholars is this. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Okay, that's an important one. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Okay, first we have this list that we get in 1 Corinthians, right? Peter, or Cephas, the 12, 500 brethren, James, and then Paul. Also, these appearances are witnessed to not just in 1 Corinthians, but in each of the Gospels we have indicators of these appearances to different people. So they're attested to in multiple sources. Now, if you're a historian... Some of you may be or or dabble with history. You know that if you want to establish a historical fact as solid, you've got to find that fact in multiple contemporary sources. We have that, unquestionably. In multiple sources, we have these appearances, and they are helping one another out. Okay, They help to prove each other. That's how history works. When we work with documents, that's what we do. So it's very, very strong, this verification by the texts. Very, very, very strong evidence. Also, those who claim to have seen Jesus alive after his death often went to death themselves for that belief. They often were killed for saying that they believed that. Now, here's the thing. They knew what they saw, right? They knew what they saw when they were getting killed they probably just would have admitted they never saw it if they didn't see it. They saw something. They saw something. They saw an appearance of Jesus alive after his death. Even Gert Ledemann, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and I don't really care. Um, the leading German critic of the resurrection says this, it may be taken as, as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. This is a leading critic not a friend of Christianity. A critic admits this fact is simply historically true. Period. It just is. These are the facts. You got to remember James, the brother of Jesus, who did not believe that Jesus was God while Jesus was doing his ministry, any more than you would believe your brother was God. If he's like, hey, I'm God, you'd be like, yeah, right, wedgie, right? <laughs> Get out of here. James didn't believe that Jesus was God. It was his brother. And yet, James has Jesus appear to him after he's dead and become so convinced that Jesus is God based on the resurrection that he goes to his death for the fact, for proclaiming the fact that his brother was God. Now that's something interesting. You'll want to be sure and click on the next episode for more facts and proof that the resurrection is real and what that means for your life. Pastor David Robinson from Acts Church is our teacher, and we would like to invite you to come see us this Sunday morning. You'll really enjoy hearing Pastor David in person, and you can get directions and all the info you need at axcamus.org or call 360-885-9000. 
Well, that's it for today, but much more is a click away in the next episode with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.